Okay, thank you, Martin. So every so often we pick one of these values and uh, we talk about it to remind ourselves in the life of the church uh, about the kind of church that we believe God is calling us to be. And, uh, and we want to just unpack some of those words and chat through them together. And as I was preparing and as I was praying and as I was thinking through this subject of adventure, God actually surprised me a little bit. And maybe it will be a surprise to you as well. But I just want to explain it as we go along because I felt that God really spoke to me for this week that part of our adventure that is so vitally important is that we stand firm. Standing firm in our faith. Now, when I hear the word adventure, I kind of think of uh, like adrenaline rush experiences and climbing mountains and sort of achieving great things. Uh, whereas standing firm could sound a little bit sort of uh, stationary, a little bit kind of dull, a little bit sort of keeping yourself to yourself. But I'd like to offer the suggestion this morning that one of the greatest outcomes of a life of faith, one of the greatest signs of fruitfulness of a life of faith is that we stand firm. Some of the greatest military uh, victories as we now know them have actually been about people standing firm. And if you look at the history of uh, this country, you think of some of the famous victories that this country has been involved with when the Spanish Armada was on its way during the Battle of Britain. Actually, some of the things that we celebrate in our national consciousness as great victories have been when we have stood firm. Some of the most famous words in the history of our language and our culture in this country are the words of Winston Churchill when he was telling the people of this country that we will stand firm, we will never surrender. So wherever we go in life and wherever God takes us and the adventure that we're on, it's really important that whatever that is for us, that we keep on going and that we stand firm. And over the last three weeks, we've been in a wonderful series on uh, living in the Spirit, living by the Spirit in the book of Galatians. And we left that series on this verse. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. We will reap a harvest if we keep on going. I don't know about you, but sadly, I'm old enough now to have seen people not keep going. I've seen friends, good friends, drifting into kind of like a, a sort of lukewarmness in their faith or, or even walking away from faith altogether. Or maybe I've seen people uh, get stuck in a situation outside of God's best for them. And I remember kind of uh, when I was younger, uh, going to all the big conferences and the youth camps, which I absolutely love, by the way. They're, they're, they're brilliant. And, they're, and, and, and we heard about the kingdom of God growing, and we heard about overseas mission, and we heard about church planting, and we heard about social justice. And we ran down the front to give ourselves and to respond, to be used by God powerfully. And 20 years later, I know it's hard to believe, but uh, 20 years later, I look around now and some of the people who I was shoulder to shoulder with at that time, some have gone on to great and wonderful things. 
but some have dropped out. Some of my closest friends no longer have an active faith. I've seen people kind of get swallowed up and burnt out by church situations or just get really distracted by all the things of life. Some of the brightest stars are no longer shining as bright as they were. And I'm sure that you can think of people now and it just grieves you. It just grieves you so much that they've drifted away or that they've got hurt. And yet, as I look around this room, I can see many people who have stood firm, who've kept on going in their faith for many, many years. I'm not pulling your leg about age here. I'm saying I can see that you've held firm and the situations you've had in your life. And I've seen the grace of God at work and you have stood firm much longer than I have. And I really want to honor you for that. And I want to honor your witness in that because you show the people coming after you that it can be done, that we can stand firm in our faith, that we can keep going. I just don't want to be used by God today. I want to be standing firm in 30, 40 years time or however long I've got left. And what I've started to learn in my own life, that somehow it's almost in those moments of standing firm, actually some of those moments are where my faith has grown the most. As you reach out to God and you reach out to your church family in difficult moments, I can think where uh, I face bereavement, where friends have died, facing miscarriage, this sort of situations that you go through in life. And it's at those moments where you just hold on to your faith with a sense of rawness. You hold on to your church family with a sense of openness. And then you just realize how important all this stuff is. And you grow in your faith and you grow in your relationships as you stand firm. So now I want to look at how are we going to continue to stand firm, both as individuals and as a church. And we're moving from the book of Galatians to Ephesians and we're going to start right at the beginning just with a couple of notes about who Paul was writing to when I come to the passage at the end of the letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So we have a letter here that was written by Paul. He'd made two visits to Ephesus in Acts 18 and 19, first a short one, and then uh, just a little bit later on going and staying there for two years, teaching, encouraging the believers, preaching the gospel, building the church, seeing many amazing miracles, seeing loads of people come to faith in Jesus to the extent that uh, people who had been involved in uh, sort of pagan worship came and burnt all of their scrolls and stuff and there was like a, this massive uh, public sense of the growth of the church in that place. Just imagine that if so many people came to faith in Shrewsbury and then we went into the square in the town centre and publicly burnt the signs of, uh, of their old life. Now we're not going to do that because uh, Simon Hayes has done a risk assessment and uh, we've decided that that is not an appropriate way to show it. But you get my drift that actually there was this sort of public growth of the church, outbreak of the kingdom in Ephesus with Paul right in the middle of it and, 
And when he left, there were tears, there was much affection that was expressed. And so he says here that he is writing to the holy people. He's writing to all the people, not just to the leadership or to a couple of his mates, but he's writing to everyone. And they are in Ephesus, a city which is in modern-day Turkey. It's likely, actually, that this letter was written to the churches in the region, so it was meant to be sort of passed on to, from church to church in the whole area around this city. But right here at the beginning, there's an interesting distinction that I want to draw out. Paul addresses them as the faithful believers in Ephesus and in Christ. Citizens, if you like, of two kingdoms. Now, our country woke up on Friday morning. Uh, some of us managed to stay up for it, but not many, I'm sure. We woke up on Friday morning. We checked the news. We saw what was happening. A period of political uncertainty, instability, not really being sure what the future held. And for lots of people, there was kind of an outbreak of confusion and concern for the future. But we, the people of God, in Christ, we don't just live in the United Kingdom. We are citizens of two kingdoms. And while the United Kingdom is really important, it's where we live, it's where we work, it's where we witness, we love and we honour our country, we bless and we pray for it, but it will pass away. It is only temporary. We've been set apart from it through our faith in Christ. Our hope and our security is his kingdom and it is a kingdom that will go on forever. So he's reminding them that they are citizens of two places as it were. But what would it have been like for them uh, living in Ephesus so that we can understand uh, why Paul was talking to them in certain ways? It's probably worth just uh, having a think about what Ephesus was like. It was a, a large Roman colony. Uh, the Roman Empire had increasingly had times of being uh, anti-Christian, and Paul himself was in prison uh, in Rome at the point he wrote this. It was a busy port, and it was also the, um, the headquarters of the cult of one of the gods, the Greek god Artemis, Roman god Diana, and there was a huge temple in the middle of Ephesus, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. That is a recreation of it in modern-day Turkey. An absolutely huge temple to a god. So we've got a big metropolitan city, a major training, uh, trading route, ships coming and going, travelers coming and going, goods and services making their way across the empire. And the temple in the middle was this center of uh, worship and a center of pilgrimage. So what must it have felt like uh, as a Christian with this huge temple to another God right in the middle of your city, visible from almost everywhere else that you went? And the, and the temple was so embedded in their culture and the industry around it, people making stuff for temple worship. It was a powerful economic and spiritual stronghold in the life of this city, so much so that when people started to come to faith in Christ, the people who used to uh, make the little silver statues and stuff in, uh, for worship in the temple, they realized that they couldn't sell as many of their things anymore. And so they started a big riot against Paul and the believers. There was a real threat of violence. The whole city was in uproar. 
a huge controversy, real danger for the Christians. Under the surface of a thriving city, there was this undertone of opposition to the gospel that was ready to just come forward. So fast forward to when he writes this letter, and he's, Paul is now in Rome. And so he's writing pe- to people in a multi-faith, multi-ethnic environment. He's writing to people with, in their culture where there is opposition and challenge to their faith. He's writing to people who literally live in the shadow of spiritual and economic strongholds, the empire and the temple. And he's writing to people who know that if they speak out with the gospel of Jesus in a way that confronts the strongholds in the culture, there is the threat of opposition or violence against them. So within this passage, we see, even before we come to it, that standing firm where we are is absolutely 100% on the front line of the adventure of Christian faith. Wherever God calls us to, we're not just on an adventure if God says we need to go to Africa. We're on an adventure here because we are standing firm, absolutely, resolutely on the front line of what God is doing. When we talk about standing firm, we're not talking about just sitting tight, singing a few choruses and staring at our belly buttons until Jesus comes back and hoping we kind of get away with it. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about being in a world that is changing, being in a world where there is opposition to the truth of Jesus, where there is shifting sands all around, but standing firm in him. And so at the end of his letter, Paul starts to talk about putting on the armor of God. And that's where we're going to spend the most time. Ephesians 6 and verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So there are powers at work in this world, and our struggle in that sense isn't about uh, individual people, but it's like there's power behind the various belief systems, ways of thinking, perhaps even uh, political and economic movements and you know sometimes where you just, you just see something or you hear something and you know behind them, behind it, there's something that's not right and there's something that's like completely opposed to the Christian message. And you see it really clearly in an event like the Holocaust. You know, you look at what happened and, uh, and you see what people did and you just realize behind that, there just must be something that is so downright evil at work and that's like a really clear example maybe in our culture today in the united kingdom the strongholds that we face if you like the things that are out there are a little bit more subtle but i would say that i believe that this country is being damaged by a really rampant sense of individualism me first and the breakdown of the family and division between different generations, and tensions between different people groups and racial groups. 
and confusion over how we conduct our relationships and our obsession with material possessions and a worldview that seeks pleasure above everything else and the cult of celebrity and militancy in religions and inequality of trade with poorer countries and disregard for the environment and selfishness with money and dare I say it the British sense of superiority and all of that even before we consider political extremism on the left and on the right or even terrorism itself now that's not an exhaustive list of course not everyone is like that of course the issue isn't with individual people in that sense but even in our culture there are so many ways of thinking and patterns of behavior which when you talk about Jesus brings you into complete sort of conflict with it straight away our culture is increasingly full of things that are directly opposed to Christian discipleship and then there's also Uh, what seems to be described as the devil's schemes too against the individual, against the believer, the lies that we hear in our mind's eye, the doubts that we have whether God really has said something, the doubts we have about our identity in God, the awful things that sometimes happen to us, the things people do and say to us, the mistakes that we ourselves make and the way we feel guilty about them. Even we know we're forgiven, but we don't feel forgiven. We carry around guilt. The temptations we have to do stuff that's outside of God's will for us. The temptation that we have to hold on to unforgiveness when people have hurt us. The list goes on. There are so many ways that we're tempted to go to the left or to the right. What are we going to do? What are we going to do in this situation? We are going to stand our ground. We're going to stand our ground. Paul says in the next section, so we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. So we're going to take our stands both as individuals and as a church family we've been called to stand firm but we need to get kitted out in order that we can do that so let's move to verse 13 if we could have the next slide 14 i meant sorry therefore put on the full armor of god so that When on the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, that was the previous, wasn't it? Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Such famous verses, and yet I believe in this day an important reminder to each and every one of us. Paul brings us this image of body armour, and he's almost certainly thinking of the Roman armour. And just think about this, at the time he's writing this letter, he is in prison 
in Rome. So it's very likely that he's writing this letter or dictating this letter while physically chained to somebody wearing this armor or with a door in front of him armed by someone wearing this clothing even as God speaks to him through it. The belt of truth, literally holding everything together in the middle of the suit. I'm not going to pull my belt out in some kind of dramatic way because I need it because it's holding things together for me. So that's really important too. And the sword was attached to the belt so that they could walk unhindered, so that the soldiers could march hands-free because they wore this belt right in the middle. The belt of truth. What do we mean by truth in this instance? Well, I think it, uh, it refers both to uh, accepting the truth about Jesus, holding on to the truth of him, and also having truthful and honest hearts. So there's a sense of like right in the center, everything holds on to trusting in God and personal integrity. And they're linked because if we allow the truth of who God is to really uh, flow down into every bit of who we are, then we can be authentic and open about who we are with ourselves and with other people. To put it bluntly, it's really difficult to stand firm if we're hypocrites. Because then if people accuse us of something, well, they're probably right and we've been trying to hide it. Whereas the truth of Jesus says we've been completely forgiven so we can be completely real and open and honest and restored with one another. And when all these sort of competing truth claims happen in this world that rage around us, the truth of Jesus is in the middle of all that we are and we hold firm. It then talks about the breastplate of righteousness. This is a very important piece of armor that uh, covers up all of the vital organs, including the heart. We have been made right with God through the sacrifice of Jesus, through the forgiveness that we receive in him. So we are completely free to approach God and be in relationship with him. And I have written those words that are printed in my talk before we've had all that prophetic ministry that this morning and that wonderful song about being free to draw close to God and to enter in to his presence. We've been made right by him. When he looks at us, he doesn't see the mistakes anymore. And that helps us because if we know what we've been saved from, then that helps us to want to steer clear of some of those mistakes again in the future. And we know that if we do trip up and if we do mess up in a situation, we can run back to God again and again because his forgiveness for us just knows no limit. But because we know that, we really try not to have to anymore. But when we have slipped up, we don't feel condemned by it in the same way. Because we know that just as our achievements didn't bring us closer to God, so our failures won't push us away from him. It is and always has been completely about Jesus and the righteousness that he gives us. And so that's like this breastplate, this armor 
that's just protecting us from discouragement, protecting us from pride, just knowing that we totally, completely, utterly, and absolutely rely on Jesus for everything. And if anyone throws stones at us or accuses us or whatever, we know that even if they're right and we have made mistakes, actually we've been forgiven through the blood of Jesus. The shield of faith. Now, this term for shield that he uses isn't the little round ones that you sometimes see on pictures of Roman soldiers, but it's the really big one. And, uh, and so it was, uh, oh, I've jumped ahead, haven't I? I'll come back to the sandals. It was the really big one. And uh, it was designed to protect people when there were flaming arrows being fired from the, uh, the opposition. What are the flaming arrows of the evil one? There's all sorts of things, I would imagine. Certainly accusations that try to make us feel guilty, doubts, fears that we might have, that we might find rob us of our joy, fears of the future, fears of in relationships, fear, um, concern for our future provision, or maybe temptations, places or people or repeat behaviors that we are tempted to go back to. Maybe uh, one of the flaming arrows of the enemy against the church is the opportunity for disunity if someone has hurt someone else or if even that's based on a misunderstanding, but it still hurts. And, and our temptation is to run away from it or to hold that as like a sort of unforgiveness against the person, that temptation to hold on to an injustice done against us. Maybe it's the other side and it's uh, people like family and friends rejecting us for our faith, uh, maligning us, mocking us for some of the positions that we hold. And this faith is a shield. God is our refuge. He's where we go for protection. And so those arrows don't actually strike at us. Faith invokes the power of God in difficult circumstances and in temptation. Faith holds on to the promises of God in difficult times or in times of doubt. Faith doesn't try and fix everything ourselves, but in every circumstance, no matter what is happening, faith holds up the power and the rule of Jesus and stands behind it because we've got nothing else to add ourselves beyond what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. We can stand firm because we're standing just a little bit behind the work and the sovereign power of Jesus who goes ahead of us. The sandals of the gospel of peace, they would wear uh, footwear that had strong soles, big strong heels, open toes, uh, designed for marching long distances and very stable on your feet. There were no uh, high heels in the uh, Roman issue, so apologies for that if that's your preference. Good footwear allows you to stand steady when you're in combat, and it also allows you to travel. Jesus has made peace between us and God, and he's taught a message of love and peace so that his people would be peacemakers in the relationships, in the cultures that they found themselves, in the difficult situations, they would always be a people 
of peace. So wherever we are or wherever we're going to, we have a message of hope and life and love and peace. We have a godly wisdom to share with people in the circumstances that they face. Moving forward then to the helmet, the helmet of salvation, a really strong and heavy helmet made probably out of iron or bronze. Charles Hodge wrote, that which adorns and protects the Christian, which enables him to hold up his head with confidence and joy, is the fact he is saved. They are saved. I should add as well, not only saved in the here and now today, but looking forward to a future salvation. When the storms rage around us, when things happen around us, ultimately we can hold our head high because we have been saved. That's not holding your head high in a proud way, that's just a not needing to stand out. We have a future hope and a future salvation that surpasses anything that can happen here and now. And then finally, the sword of the Spirit. Imagine a kind of like the smallish one-handed sword that you may have seen a Roman soldier carrying in a film or in a picture. I'm not suggesting you're that old. So, uh, <laughs> small and light sword used in one-to-one -one combat. So the only part of the armor that's used for attack. But let's get the word right. Hold on a minute. I am not remotely suggesting that we uh, use this verse or this term as an excuse to kind of like really go around bashing people with the Bible. That is not what we are suggesting. But the truth of Scripture is how we make our stand. When people question the truth claims of Christianity, it is to Scripture we should point them. When people question where Jesus fits into this massive supermarket of religious thought and belief system in this country, it is to Scripture that we should point them. When temptation comes in our life and we want to act or think in a way that's outside of God's best for us, it's to scripture that we should speak to ourselves. We should speak to ourselves through scripture. When people ask about faith and about why we have this hope, we should point them to scripture. Time passes. Time passes. There's going to be a time where Dave Mathias is long gone. There will even be a time where the memories of Dave Mathias are long gone. But the word of the Lord continues forever. And so when I speak or act, I want to build, I want to speak, not with my own feelings or with my own opinions, but pointing people to what Scripture says. As we encourage people in the faith and new generations, we're not just telling them to do it our way, we're pointing them to Scripture because it's the truth of scripture that has maintained the faith and maintained the witness through the ages. Scripture is always true. It's always revealing. 
it's always witnessing. And despite so many attempts to destroy and suppress the witness of the Bible, it is still the most important book now and in every generation, and it will continue to be so. But let's not just answer people with our ideas. Let's show them where the truth comes from, the words of Scripture. The thing about this armor, though, is that it doesn't give the impression that it's automatically ours. It's not like you become a Christian believer and then you kind of like press a button. I don't know if you remember the Wallace and Gromit films where... uh, He just kind of like pressed a button in the morning and then all this machinery started working and suddenly he was dressed for the day, sometimes less successfully than others. Sometimes he put on the wrong trousers, etc. That was kind of part of the fun of it. We don't get that sort of offer in Christianity. Suddenly we immediately have all these things because Paul says, put on the full armor of God. And there's a sense of keep putting on the full armor of God Every day put on the full armor of God, the full armor of God, not just bits of it, not just the easy bit or the bit that you find the most interesting or whatever, the full armor of God. Don't leave a gap in it. Don't leave space for the devil to have a foothold. Put on the full armor of God. We don't want to be distracted in life so that when some of these things happen, we're almost like trying to rush to get ready and to remember how we should approach things. We need to be ready at all times. And then interestingly, Paul turns to the subject of prayer. So vital, so pivotal for the Christian believer and the church in overcoming evil. If we could have the, uh, the next verses. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the God's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me, that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. The word all is right in the middle of this encouragement to pray. All times, all prayers and requests, all perseverance, for all God's people. It's pretty universal, isn't it? I don't know about you, but if I'm honest, my prayer life probably looks like sometimes some prayers and requests with some perseverance for some of the Lord's people, whereas Paul seems to be encouraging us that if we are going to stand firm in life, the thing that we should do the most or with the highest priority and with the highest sense of passion and focus on life is to pray the call is for more prayer over everything and as things get worse we pray more so we will stand wearing the armor of God and through prayer but just a reminder as well that I don't think any of these verses only have an individual outworking he's written to all the believers in the region of Ephesus. So there is an altogether way of applying these as well as just us. And so in our midweek groups this week, 
we're going back into this passage and we're going to be looking at all the practical outworkings of this individually, but also us as a church. Praying for ourselves and praying together. Praying for yourself, but praying for all God's people. Tonight at Encounter, such a brilliant opportunity to do that. We're going to be calling on God together, praying in different ways, in different things for different people. We're going to be doing exactly what Paul is encouraging us to do in this passage. Can I encourage you to come tonight? It's not just another meeting in the program or whatever, and it's not just for the people who like praying it's or like worship or whatever. It's one of the ways that we as a church continue to stand firm. So, in conclusion, and then I would love us to finish by worshipping, we can look at our society, we can look at our culture, and we can know and we can see that there are things increasingly that are opposed to the Christian faith within it. And we are going to stand firm. And we're going to stand firm together. We're going to continue to work out what it means to be a church family. We're not going to let sort of hurt or disappointment damage us. We don't want to be hypocrites. In our adventure with God, we want to see God move really powerfully in this region. We want to see the gospel go forth and for more and more people to come to faith in Jesus. But we understand that we want to see that happen in an increasingly hostile environment in some ways. We totally want to grow in our faith and in our expectations and in our experiences of God. But underpinning all of that and any vision we have and any, uh, anything in the future that God calls us to is this fact. We are going to stand firm. Our hope is not in ourselves, but in his salvation and in his kingdom. And both of those are things of eternal value that we can put our hope and our trust in. I'd love to invite the band to come forwards. We're going to sing a song of faith about God reigning and our hope in him. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, great. <laughs> We've got the right song. That's good. Uh, could we stand together? I would love to pray and then I am going to hand over to Esther.